what came through the book as well and, and, and really needs additional attention is uh, the ripple harms that uh, uh, ripple out across the community. So uh, sexual and gender-based misconduct on campus, uh, more often than not, isn't just encapsulated in, in individual experiences. Uh, it uh, uh, you know, often has much broader uh, impacts across uh, communities, whether it be uh, class groups, uh, student organizations, uh, uh, you know, you name it, uh, the ripple harm is going to uh, ripple out across those groups. And so uh, finding ways as an institution to be attentive to those things and, and really work toward repair that, repairing that harm simultaneously uh, is so important. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, I'm joined by the editors and authors of the new book, Applying Restorative Justice to Campus Sexual Misconduct. This topic is full of cautions and possibilities, and I'm so excited to have two leaders here to discuss this, discuss their book, and the many contributions of their contributing authors. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Simplicity, a true partner. Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach. You can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. And I'm recording this from my home in Minneapolis, Minnesota, at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of both the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. Uh, let's get to the conversation in this important topic today. Uh, Karen and Eric, thank you so much for being with us and for contributing to this project and this book, and love to have both of you uh, introduce yourselves. Karin, lead us off. Thanks so much, Keith. It's really nice to be with you today and to be on the podcast. And I'm really excited to be talking about this book that we've been working a long time on. Um, it's definitely been a passion project. Um, I am currently at the University of Michigan. I direct an office called PEAR, Prevention, Education, Assistance, and Resources. It's a newer prevention um, office focused on training, education, engagement with faculty and staff on campus. Um, but I've been in this work of restorative justice and campus sexual misconduct for a long time and really started my journey of that when I was way back at Carleton College. And Carleton gave me a leave, um, a sabbatical for a semester in 2010 to do a deep dive into restorative justice and sexual misconduct. And I thought I'd I'd go away, figure it out and bring it back and we'd be done in a year. And um, it was more like a decade, decade and a half project. <laughs> yeah. I thought it would be done in a year and it was really more of a, a career changer. Um, right. So we'll, we can get more into that, but I've been in this work and for a long time and I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, well, I've had the fortune to talk with Karen about this along the journey and along the way and to hear you ideating and talking about this uh, from really a place of passion and commitment and care. Uh, so it's great to see this book out there in the world and to have you here to talk about it. And uh, with Eric, who is a co-editor on the book. Uh, Eric, tell us all a little bit about you. 
Hello, Keith. Uh, first, uh, thank you so much for the invitation, uh, for the opportunity. Uh, I'm Eric Wessel. Uh, I use he, him pronouns, and uh, I've served as the director of the Office of Student Conflict Resolution uh, here at the University of Michigan since 2015. Uh, I've long been an advocate uh, of the needs-focused restorative interventions uh, across a wide range uh, of community issues. And uh, I came to Michigan in 2015 to build upon uh, the foundational work of my predecessors who really envisioned uh, and operationalized the spectrum model of conflict resolution pathways. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, a core contribution in my time here has been to collaborate with exceptional colleagues uh, in the development and implementation of a spectrum of restorative, adaptable pathways for meeting individual and community need uh, in instances of sexual and gender-based harm. Uh, and really, this book that we're going to be discussing today, for my part, uh, is an outflow of that work. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm so excited to to learn from both of you. Um, let's uh, frame this a little bit. As I mentioned in the opening, this is topic has both cautions and possibilities, which was one of the reasons Karin couldn't go away for a semester and figure it out because it's complicated for all sorts of reasons and also full of possibilities. And I, I think maybe those are one and the same. The cautions are part of what makes it uh, offers up possibilities. So help us unpack this for folks a little bit. I think, um, you know, my own trajectory as a student affairs professional, as a former Title IX coordinator and somebody who's been doing this work in higher education for a long time, I feel like my story, my lived experience is I see that reflected in a lot of other people's lived experience of people get into this work because they care a great deal. They want to be effective. They want to do what are Title IX obligations of stop the misconduct, prevent its reoccurrence and remedy the effects, right? I, I heard that from my dissertation research, lots of student affairs, Title IX, conduct folks really want that to be true. And I think what I found in my own work and what I found in my own research with those folks was that the tools that we had, our traditional investigative resolution options, were not sufficient in being able to do that for everybody who was seeking assistance. Some folks wanting to make a report wanted that more formal um, investigative option with a hearing and that that kind of uh, approach to what they experienced on campus. But I think as a practitioner and talking to lots of practitioners, I heard from folks directly that they didn't want what we were offering in terms of that kind of investigative approach and we had nothing else. And so that's part of what prompted me to go out searching. I remember I was sitting in a hearing and and I had this moment, and this was probably 2008, 2009. And I remember thinking, this feels traumatizing for everybody in the room. Mm -hmm. And what if we started from a point of view of healing? Mm -hmm. What would our process look like? Now, I didn't know what I was really asking. But sometimes when you ask the universe a question, it sends you on a pathway that you didn't anticipate. Mm -hmm. And that was one for me of criminal justice reform and looking at justice systems and indigenous forms of justice and how how have other systems looked at these things. And when I found restorative justice, when um, Howard Zare calls it a, a process by which we can address harm to people and relationships, 
that really resonated with me mm-hmm. because often when people were coming forward to say this thing happened to me, they wanted help with that harm to themselves right. and to their community. Often this happens in community. And so mm-hmm. our tools were not able to really address the harm to the people in relationships. And that's where restorative justice for me was a possible option. Yeah. And, and so over the last 12, 14 years that I've been doing this, I see school after school struggling with that same thing of we've developed these elaborate, formal Title IX investigative resolution processes, but not everybody wants to use those. Mm-hmm. And so I was interested in how might we expand that so we can actually respond to more cases mm-hmm. and meet people where they're at and, and really think about what are they asking for? Mm-hmm. What needs do they have? Um, and how might we address those needs? So it's, it, you know, this was a big labor of love pulling this book together because there were people across the country who were doing this work, creating it on their campus. And so part of what Eric and I wanted to do was really capture the insights from this emerging field of practice and philosophy to see what does this actually look like on the ground and yeah. what how what can practitioners learn from folks who are already already doing this i really resonate that with that because i in uh, thinking back on my time doing those investigations being in the room my experience not always but but maybe half the time was someone saying this happened to me I don't think this person meant it or Mm -hmm. understood and, but they need to know so they don't keep doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd be like, okay, well, this is great. And then you'd meet with the the respondent who would say, I don't understand why I'm here. I don't get what has happened. And then 30 days later on the other side of a bunch of meetings, it was so adversarial and, he's a predator and she's a sociopath and blah, blah, blah. And just like, and I, not only was that not helpful, but I felt like the process in many ways had fostered that the process that we sort of felt like we had to do mm-hmm. at that time fostered that. And I just thought there, there's a, there's another path here. Sometimes yeah. things start with that and need that. So I really resonate with that yearning for something about the harm, about the people, Um, Mm -hmm. And also the, you mentioned the people involved in the community, but also (laughs) the people they're going to interact with for the rest of their, their life. Right. Um, Doesn't end um, at a suspension or graduation or things like that. Uh, Eric, what would you like to add here? Yeah. uh, You know, Keith, I think that um, uh, the the question asked about possibilities, um, Mm -hmm. I would uh, start by reframing that as I think that there's an imperative here. Uh, and the imperative is, uh, well, I think that if there's one thing that we can generally all agree to, is that a singular pathway for resolving such a complex issue is is never going to meet everybody's need. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if we can start there at that fundamental uh, point of agreement, um, then it, it allows us to uh, uh, then take that conversation say, okay, well then, then now what, uh, what follows on, uh, uh, that, what imperative does that uh, create for us? What opportunity for creativity, uh, does that allow for us to, 
uh, embark on. You know, and uh, uh, drawing upon what you were talking about, Keith and, and Carton as well. Um, you know, we see that uh, uh, kind of dissonance play out within our our community. We know from uh, data just here at the University of Michigan that uh, uh, there's a substantial amount of people that that don't report. And when mm -hmm. we ask them why they don't report, uh, 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 there's a myriad of reasons, um, but a really significant one um, to the tune of perhaps maybe one in four are because they don't want uh, that person to get in trouble. Uh, so of the many reasons why people uh, uh, don't uh, report, um, that's one that would lead them to, you know, not uh, uh, to, to see the uh, adversarial process and say, that's not uh, for me. Now, does that mean that they're not interested in accountability? I would say that that would be a bridge too far. I don't yeah. think that that's what they're saying. Uh, and that's where I think, uh, you know, at least in part uh, going in the direction of uh, having a broader national conversation around what the uh, what a restorative lens could look like in this space uh, is a natural follow on yeah. from that. Degree. Well, and I, I hear from folks um, as I work with multiple campuses, folks who are just really connecting with restorative practices in traditional conduct cases and, and and even in community building, right? Proactive circles at the beginning of a year in residence hall community yeah. and then saying, but we just can't go there around sexual misconduct. Mm -hmm. um, we'd like to, but we don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we see all the ways it could be full of possibility, but also with, we just, we just don't know how. And it sounds like you sort of gather people who were experimenting and trying things and doing things. Um, so tell us a little bit about how the book came to be, how it's organized, and what folks who are wanting some possibilities and solutions, some some structure, some guidance uh, might find in it. Why don't yeah. you kick us off here, Eric? Happy to do that. Uh, so I think that uh, uh, some history here is uh, perhaps important. You know, so around the time that um, our institution, the University of Michigan, was grappling with uh, uh, kind of foundational uh, court uh, process in Doe v. Baum, uh, so that particular ruling and then the subsequent uh, federal regulations, uh, you know, we really became even more convinced that, as I was saying earlier, this continuation of a singular pathway for resolving campus sexual harm uh, was going to continue to be uh, insufficient. And so it really demanded this uh, creative consideration of additional options. So that allowed for the uh, the space, the institutional space for us to start that uh, conversation uh, in a very different place. You know, so we we uh, were able to use a a really challenging uh, institutional moment uh, involving litigation. Uh, to uh, springboard the conversation uh, forward. Um, now, it was also uh, against the backdrop of the fact that, you know, we had relatively uh, well-developed um, and widely utilized uh, conflict resolution resources that utilizes a spectrum of conflict resolution pathways under which we could uh, uh, undergird a framework, you know, build a framework for uh, what this could look like. You know, so we certainly weren't... Um, uh, you know, weren't building from scratch uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but um, 
but did allow us to go in a in a uh, you know positive direction. So okay, so fast forward uh, a, a little bit um, in terms of kind of Karen and I's evolution of thinking around this book. So uh, really, it was at a a conference uh, around that same time ish where we. Uh, really collectively observed that uh, you know colleagues uh, across the country were acknowledging and in some ways attempting to uh, make sense of a possible future uh, in this area of work. And you know, given our own background and institutional uh, direction, uh, we felt the time was right to uh, explore the development of some foundational scholarship uh, to support the current and potential future practitioners uh, in this area of work. Now. You know, this is uh, still clearly emerging, uh, and this book really seeks to provide a, a collection of expert voices, really to bring some initial clarity to uh, what is uh, admittedly an otherwise complex set of, of work, for sure. Um, so this book uh, is organized uh, to that end in four sections that I would uh, lay out for your listeners. Um, part one. Uh, really focuses around the philosophical grounding uh, and advice on where to start uh, for a practitioner. You know, so gives a, a good baseline uh, a place to begin. Uh, part two uh, goes into greater detail about process and interventions and really gets into the meat uh, mm -hmm. of it for people uh, fairly quickly. Uh, recognizing that this is a... Uh, uh, area of work that requires a high degree of facilitative expertise. Uh, part three really focuses on that restorative facilitator uh, and their practice in the sexual and gender-based misconduct space. And then finally, part four uh, provides a collection of what I would describe as uh, topical essays that really provide wisdom from experts across the country uh, that kind of contextualizes um, uh, uh, what processes look like, the diversity of uh, implementations across the country, uh, uh, and just give some good wisdom and insight into how uh, practitioners and institutions alike can uh, uh, start going in a positive direction here. Karin, what would you add to that? Um, I think part of what I was thinking about, Keith, when you were saying that you hear people around the country express some interest in this, but not not for sexual misconduct. And I think partly this book is also for those folks <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because um, that is something that I've heard a lot. And it's not because they don't see the need. Right. They're just not quite sure of like, how would we even start that? Absolutely. And, um, and that's really why we wanted to have a practitioner focused book that is based in research, but also speaks directly to practitioners mm -hmm. uh, because that is such a common thing that I hear from people around mm -hmm. the country. And part of what I've been doing the last five, seven years is doing um, workshops, trainings for RJ and sexual misconduct. And so I'm hearing from people who are committed enough to sign up for a week-long training or a month-long intensive I'm teaching a course right now, a, a part of a certificate program. And a lot of the folks in the those trainings or in that course have started at that point of like, mm -hmm. I'm aware of the need. I'm just not quite sure of the how, and even like, how do I convince people about this? Yeah. Well, and I think uh, you're both highlighting, uh, I'll point out in the title, 
the first word is applying <laughs> restorative justice to campus sexual assault. Yeah. And then the subtitle is a guide to emerging practices and emerging is highlighted. So this is very practical. Yeah. This isn't, this is making the case, but it's also, here's how you can do it. Here's some stories. Here's some examples. Here's how we've done it on our campus. Here's how we've done it over here. Here's what we learned from this. And so it really brings together um, a lot of different perspectives uh, a lot of folks who who we've had on the podcast, a lot of folks who've been writing and thinking about this for multiple decades, and a lot of practitioners who are putting this into practice in their day-to-day -day basis. How did you pull some of these folks together? Um, these are a lot of folks that um, we have run across over our years of doing this work, who we've responded to questions or we've yeah. collaborated with on trainings. Um, or on, um, you know, we meet them at conferences, we meet them nationally, because there are people who, who are trying to figure out how to do this work, and we're mm -hmm. talking to one another. And that's really when Eric and I were thinking about this book, we knew we were like, oh, there are people that can help contribute to this. This is not a, a Karin and Eric show, right? This is, we're going to do this work of collecting folks together um, to share the range of emerging practices. There isn't just one, right? So it's, there isn't just one model. I think there are some guideposts that Sheila McMahon and I write about in, in one of the chapters that I contribute to of like, here are some things to ground yourself in. Um, but, but there are a lot of different ways this can look depending on your community, right? How it, mm -hmm. there's a chapter from folks at Luther College how they approach things is going to be different. They have a very different community, different size than the way University of Michigan is going to. So there's not a one size fits all approach. Um, and part of what we wanted to make sure people understood was that restorative justice is a set of practices, but more importantly, it's a philosophy. Mm -hmm. It's a philosophy of crime, of wrongdoing, of policy violation. Again, that's more focused on the harm and how do we address the harm? How do we make sure it doesn't happen again? What does real meaningful accountability look like then on what the policy violation is? Mm -hmm. And then what does somebody deserve from that particular policy violation? So it's just, a, it's a different starting point. Um, and it's one that, Keith, that what you said earlier around, you know, where people start in the process and then where they end up can be really different. And they can start mm -hmm. from a point of, found this in my research, of somebody saying, I just want them to understand what they did was wrong or it hurt me and I don't want them to do it again. And then once they're in an adversarial process and the respondent is really only asked to defend themselves, mm -hmm. <laughs> then they're off to the races. And once somebody who's bringing the report comes forward, sees somebody's denial, then all bets are off and it's yeah. sort of a bloodbath and it's, yeah. it is war. And, and they're both telling the story to their friends yes. over and over and it shifts and it moves and you see all of that, yeah. which is very human and very understandable. Yep. Um, yeah. yeah. And it, and I think for me, I just kept thinking it doesn't have to be this way. Right. And it's incumbent on us who are doing the work, who are creating these processes to figure out if there's another way forward. Is there something else we can offer to our students? It's 
you know, one of the fundamental tenets of a restorative process that it has to be voluntary for everybody. This is not something that we can shoehorn people into or say, no, no, you can only go in this pathway. That is completely inappropriate. It's opposed to the regulations. <laughs> regulations require us to have it be a voluntary. Um, and the restorative philosophy requires requires it to be a voluntary process. We've talked about um, some of the traditional process and, and how that doesn't sometimes work for folks. And it didn't have to be this way. Yeah. What what can it look like? Have there been some success stories where where this has really thrived, maybe from your own experience or maybe from from folks in the book? Yeah, I, I think um, I am trying. I, I, my immediate response was to tear up because I think um, it is possible. And I think part of it is to first meet people where they're at and really have an understanding of what does somebody who's bringing this experience forward and asking for the institution to help for us to fully understand kind of what what did they experience what do they think and say that they need and from our perspective giving them the time to process that and to not say you need to decide by friday because we have to send this thing out on monday right it's a organic sort of adaptable process to use the terms um, from the University of Michigan. It adapts to the needs of the parties and the processes that I've seen where it's been really successful, the facilitators are able to really understand the parties, both parties. Mm -hmm. um, and we talk a lot and we it's written about in the book, a multi-partial process, right? Of multi-partiality. This is not neutrality. This is, as one of my facilitator friends says, I'm all in with you and I'm all in with you because I mm -hmm. want all the parties to get the most out of the process as they can. And the facilitators have to be the steward of the process. And both parties need to feel understood and feel like they have a voice in what's happening. And I think the processes that I've seen that have gone the best. It's not like everyone's friends at the end. There's oftentimes a, I don't ever want to see them again. And that's right. fine. But they feel a resolution. They feel like they understood. There was an understanding of, I get it. I'm not going to do that again. There's some sort of apology. But research shows us and tells us in this space that that's, that's often not what people actually want. Sometimes it's what they want. They just want acknowledgement and to not do it again. Like I want them to learn. Um, and, and if they feel like they have some say in them having a learning and then they're getting their need met for like, I want to make sure I'm preventing this in the way I can, that somebody else doesn't have to experience this. Eric, any, I, I sort of talked in generalities, but anything yeah. else you would share from what you've seen? Yeah, you know, uh, so calibrating towards uh, success, quote unquote success is a, is a, that's a tricky thing. That's a, that's a difficult thing because, uh, in a voluntary process, uh, there there is there's no real way to guarantee outcomes uh, to that process, right? It's about as Karen was describing, uh, you know, are we elevating voices? Are we uh, providing equitable opportunity to uh, to engage in the process that uh, the parties themselves have uh, defined as most 
uh, useful for them and agreed to, uh, along with, to use uh, the phrase that Karin used, a, a multi-partial facilitator on our end, um, that is what we found to be the most uh, successful, where um, uh, you know the agency is really given to the parties that are involved, truly given to the parties that involved are involved to uh, identify the resolution pathway that is going to be uh, most useful for them, whether that be uh, a facilitated dialogue uh, or uh, perhaps the parties don't want to be in the same place, which is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we have uh, a shuttle negotiation process, you know, where we can work toward an agreement that is focused on meeting the needs, uh, first and foremost, of course, of the harmed party, uh, you know, but also uh, taking into consideration what are the needs of the respondents to uh, uh, to learn and grow uh, from this yeah. uh, uh, and to really lean into that um, uh, uh, that moment of opportunity around uh, preventing future recurrence of sexual misconduct uh, in our community. That's that's where that starts. Yeah, this is great. We're using some of my all-time favorite words like healing, uh, accountability, agency. If we could just work hope in there, we'd be we'd get my bingo card. So thank you. This is oh great. This is great. Um, <laughs> I'd love to hear, you know, uh, I got to edit a book, which Karen contributed to, and uh, I learned so much. I learned so much from reading each of the chapters and the evolution, and I learned so much from these different folks and different perspectives. I'd love to hear, um, as sort of the organizers, right, who had thought about this a lot, and then invited so many people to come in um, and contribute, what were some of the things that you really learned uh, through the process. Um. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that uh, if there's a couple of things that I'd, I'd really like to uh, just kind of cascade forward to your yeah. listeners here is that uh, this book is really about jumpstarting uh, and advancing an important conversation. You know, so it was always going to be an edited book. It had to be an edited book because it needed to elevate the voices of so many uh, uh, important practitioners in this in this field. Um, and it's a start to a conversation because there's so many more voices to to add to it. Uh, you know, we only have so many chapters that we can fit into a. Um, well, you got 20 chapters in there. So nice job. And with a lot of different right. contributing offers. So there's a lot of voices yep. who are a part of this. Yep. You know, but uh, we we remain at the beginning here and uh, there's a lot of work ahead to, to do for sure. Mm-hmm. I think the only thing I would add is um, just in looking at the work, it was important that we include a chapter, a couple chapters on educational interventions for folks who have caused harm. Mm-hmm. Because part of what I've observed in this work over the last five, six, seven years is that as campuses want to develop a restorative approach to sexual misconduct, mm-hmm. they have to simultaneously make sure they have a curriculum for respondents. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we call respondent education, the folks who wrote the chapter. Um, call it specialized interventions for addressing problematic sexual behavior using more first person um, language. Mm-hmm. And because if the biggest request, right, students come in with, I want them to understand what they did was wrong and not do it again. Yep. The understand what they did takes time. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that curriculum that we have at the University of Michigan is written about in that chapter, but 
those, those things have to go hand in hand because we know um, that our sex ed curriculum, our consent-based education, our healthy relationships education for K-12 and, and in college leaves a lot to be desired. And so there's a lot of unlearning and re-education that is needed for healthy, safe, respectful relationships. Uh, and so creating uh, an educational approach for that is crucial. And that's one of the things that we saw develop wherever RJ was developing, that was developing simultaneously. So mm-hmm. I kind of knew that. And then we definitely saw that in the chapters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, unlearning is another one of my favorite words. So thanks for that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I'm hopeful. That yeah. There you go. All going to come together. <laughs> or, uh, one additional point that I, I kind of came to my mind as you were were speaking is, um, uh, you know, I think we in this space at this point in time are often thinking most about uh, uh, interventions for individual benefit. Um, uh, what came through the book as well and 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 really needs additional attention is uh, the ripple harms that uh, uh, ripple out across the community. So uh, sexual and gender-based misconduct on campus uh, more often than not isn't just encapsulated in in individual experiences. Uh, it uh, uh, you know often has much broader uh, impacts across uh, communities, whether it be uh, class groups, uh, student organizations, uh, uh, you know, you name it, uh, the ripple harm is going to uh, ripple out across those groups. And so uh, finding ways as an institution to be attentive to those things and, and really work toward repair that, repairing that harm simultaneously uh, mm-hmm. is so important. Yeah, it's teams, group of friends, you know, I, right. when I'm talking with uh, college students about prevention, uh, they're often both our friends. <laughs> right and how do we make sure that one isn't a survivor and one isn't a perpetrator because that's better for both of them and when yeah. something does happen it often affects um the community around them that's a great great point yeah definitely i think the only other thing i would add is part of what we learned and part of what i learned um in some of the research i did with sheila on early adopters we did a research project that is some one of our chapters in the book talks about this and we have another paper about it, but what we- Sheila McMahon, right? With Sheila McMahon. One of the things we found um, was that on each campus, there needed to be a champion. There needed to be somebody to usher this through who could help people understand what it was, what it wasn't, answer the difficult questions and kind of be that consistent force of, yep, we can do this look at these policies. Here's a training. I'm happy to volunteer for this. Like somebody yep. had to embody it and see it through. Um, and that was consistent across, um, across the organizations. And that's part of why we wrote, we had uh, Pablo Sider and Elisa Lopez write this chapter on what is, what about due process to answer some of the very common questions that come up. So it's like, isn't this you know, questions like, isn't this going soft on crime, right? So how do you respond to a question like that? So they give some answers to some of those common questions that mm-hmm. can be hard to figure out. How do you respond to these questions? So they give a little guidance on some of those really common questions in that chapter. Well, and not just respond to these questions, but people might not know what, I don't even know what I, how I would answer that for myself. That's right. 
Yeah. So, so helping clarify yeah. for herself and then also giving some tools to communicate yeah. that to others. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, well, we're, we're coming up uh, on the end of our time, um, but I'd love to hear from both of you what you're thinking about now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the podcast is called Student Affairs Now. We always end with what are you thinking, troubling, or pondering now? Um, the book is out, but it's mm-hmm. my guess is it's been at least two years since you started <laughs> at inviting people in and it's written and you're edited and it's out and thinking emerges. So love to hear um, from, from both of you a bit about where you're thinking about this now. So um, I think, Eric, we're going to start with you. Yeah. Um, so uh I suspect that maybe Karen might talk a little bit about uh, training as she has uh, in the past. I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction, uh, kind of thinking institutionally. Uh, I, when we think about uh, applying restorative approaches uh, to any area of practice, uh, I think about what we often describe as a collective impact model. Mm. You know, So in other words, um, it's not just my office's responsibility. It's not just uh, Karen's office's responsibility. It's not just our wellness unit. It's not just, you know, the, the uh, you can go on and on and on. Um, uh, it's about how do we bring to bear the totality of our, our institutional resources together in a way uh, that really gets at these uh, uh, truly restorative uh, interventions, restorative being meeting needs, working toward healing. Uh, you know, so, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we've made some strides uh, in that direction, uh, but we also have uh, some gaps as well. Uh, a lot of our work institutionally has been focused on the student experience, uh, and we also know that we've got lots of other stakeholder groups, faculty, staff, uh, you know, so a lot of the good work that Karen and her team are building and doing uh, I think is uh, is so important. So I guess that's that's what I'm kind of thinking here at our own institution, uh, thinking bigger and broader, expanding the vision, um, you know, really helping people catch uh, that vision and, and see themselves as contributors to it. Well, and I imagine part of that too is communicating with students ahead of time, because as you mentioned, if they don't know that this isn't even an option and they just assume it's adversarial, like they see in the news or yeah. like they assume from TV shows or or whatever, then they don't even report and even find out it's an option. So you've got to be proactive and let people know that there are different ways, which I imagine is really challenging because until it happens, nobody thinks this is going to happen. Right. Right. And then yep. it's, it's like telling students yeah. on their first day living with their roommate about roommate conflict. They're going to be yeah. best friends for life, right? right? It's never, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Which is why, uh, you know, we need uh, student organizations to know about our adaptable resolution processes, mm. why we need our faculty to have a general awareness of uh, what this work looks like. Uh, our academic advisors, you know, the, yeah. the list goes on and on. The, the degree to which our community has a broader base awareness of what uh, uh, adaptable resolution resources uh, look like, um, the better off we're all going to be because yeah. uh, they are going to be able to uh, uh, help us uh, communicate forward uh, mm-hmm. what these resources uh, might be able to do in order yeah. to to really meet that need. It's such a great point because peers are often the ones telling someone 
I think what happened to you was sexual misconduct. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, 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 no. Well, if you're saying this, because for lots of reasons, we don't want to think harm has happened to us, but often those peers are saying, and here's, you should talk to someone. Oh, no, I, I um, that is often, you know, sort of peers who are helping people process and think through and learn yeah. about options when maybe they're not ready to think about it in that way. Right. Yeah. Karen, what, what are you troubling now? Well, I... I keep thinking about uh, trust Mm. and really feels like in my career, we're at a low point of trust of institutions. And, And so part of our institutional response to harm, when people report it to us, we have an opportunity to also address their mistrust Mm -hmm. in an institution. And I think you know, our our traditional investigative processes, people work really hard to make them trauma-informed and compassionate. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, they're not about healing. Mm-hmm. They are a means by which an institution can hold a respondent accountable. And the harmed party is really a witness. Mm-hmm. And there's no other way around that, right? And it's just the same as a criminal justice process. And Judith Herman said, right, if we were to design a process to be intentionally traumatizing to victims, it would look a lot like our criminal justice process. And when I first read that, that was like a knife through my heart. And I was like, this is what I've helped to create on my own campus. And I felt an imperative to create something different to really meet the needs of people who are harmed on my watch while I was on that campus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I feel like the other phrase I just wanna leave with people is one of my favorite quotes by a visionary that I love. And he says, um, pain pushes until vision pulls. And I feel like the pain of our traditional processes are pushing administrators to look for a different vision of how we might create something that is hopeful, that is focused on healing and holistic behavior change, that stop, prevent, remedy, right? That really lives into that Title IX mandate. And um, and we're, we're seeing that restorative justice options might help um, folks to do that on their campus. Wonderful. Um... I always know when Karen puts the glasses up, we're in for it. Um, I had to make space for extra yeah, thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anything else either of you would like to add before we wrap up and include today? Um, I just so appreciate the opportunity and um, and that there are a lot of people who are interested. And uh, so we're, you know, we're happy to be a resource and to connect folks who might not even know each other on their own campuses. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there are a lot of folks who are trying to see this develop across the country. Yeah, yeah, my wonderful. Exhortation, my exhortation to your listeners is join the conversation. Yeah, uh, that's where this is headed. Uh, yeah. You know, there's a lot more to to explore. There's a lot more to do, and a lot more work to be done. So we're looking forward to being in it with you. Yeah. Well, and and check out the book. I got to read an early copy and offer an endorsement uh, for it, which was, I was really honored uh, to be able to do that. There's tons of folks who have contributed, including folks who have been on this podcast talking about it. 
including some really uh, visionary leaders in the field, some really great practitioners, some really great critical thinkers. And if you want to connect with other people, this would be a great way to sort of tap into some of those folks uh, and connect with them. So thanks to, to both of you for your work on this over decades and for your work on the book over years and uh, for your time today. Uh, sharing and thinking and inspiring us. I really appreciate your leadership and your contributions. So thank you both so much. Thanks. Uh, and thanks to our sponsor for today's episode, Simplicity. Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success, and accessibility services. To learn more, visit simplicity.com or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. As always, a huge shout out to our producer, Natalie Ambrosi, who does all the work behind the scenes to make us look and sound good. We love the support for these important conversations from our community. You can help us reach even more folks by subscribing to the podcast, uh, hitting it on YouTube, uh, subscribing to our weekly newsletter, announcing each new episode and more. If you're so inclined, you can even leave us a five-star review. It really helps these reach more folks. I'm Keith Edwards. Thank us to the, thanks to the fabulous guests today and to everyone who's watching and listening. Please make it a great week. Thank you all. <laughs>